Good morning. It is great to see you here today. This service has been growing and growing and growing the last several months. That is a great blessing, one that we have prayed for for a long time. But as goes with blessings, there are also challenges that come right on their heels. And let me share with you some of the challenges of a growing service. And really, this is just from a preacher's perspective, so other people may not share this. When a service grows like this, a lot of times, people that are coming into it don't know that certain people sit in certain places. (laughs) But preachers do. And so then when I'm looking around and I am seeing people in the wrong place, I am completely off balance. Now let me give you an example. Greg and Kathy Yearout are sitting over here to my right right now. Greg and Kathy always sit right here. So I'm going to look over there and I'm going to wonder if Jesus has returned and I missed it and I don't know what happened. So we have that going on. Steve and Denise Snockenberg, who always sit over here, are now here. I don't know what to do with that. Malcolm and Deb Edwards, who always sit here, are over here. This is a goofy day. And so if I am completely discombobulated, fall off the stage or something like that, please forgive me for it. It's not my fault. It's all these people's fault. And by that, I mean these people that are sitting in the wrong place. So (laughs) we have a, a pretty cool church. We really do. And this past week was a great description of that. It was a perfect illustration of it. There were people here pulling weeds all week long, working out here in the flower beds, working over by the playground. Some people that were invited to be here on a work day and others that were just showing up. We've had people back working in the pavilion as we are in the final push to finish all of that out and get it squared away. Other folks that were hanging sunshades out around the pavilion. The prime timers were out and about on a boat ride on Flathead Lake. The list just goes on and on and on of things that were happening that are just cool. And it's fun to be a part of a church that does stuff like that. And it's fun to be a part of a church full of servants that are willing to just jump in and do whatever needs to be done. And and what a great blessing that is. We also have a pretty cool church because we're willing to try some new things. And on August 11th, we are going to do that very thing. And I hope you'll be a part of it. If you show up here at 8.30 in the morning on August 11th, which is a Sunday, you'll be alone. Nobody will be here. We are having church on that Sunday. We're just not having it here. We are going to be out at the River Bend. Dave and Tammy Blackburn have been very generous and gracious to us to open their facility, and they have a beautiful, beautiful outdoor area right on the river. So we are going to be having our service there at 10 o'clock in the morning on August 11th. Now, it is going to be a very unique, different service, starting with the fact that we're only having one. So we are praying for somewhere north of 700 people to be there with us. We're inviting you to bring a lawn chair. Otherwise, there's a lot of ground to sit on. So bring a lawn chair with you. Dress really casual. Wear some shorts, capris, hat, whatever, because the sun will be coming right down on us. But the best part of the day will be what happens during the service. We're wanting to show you as we wrap up our Living Generously sermon series what it means to live generously through worship. We're going to show you some different aspects of worship, some different ways to worship. The setting will be spectacular, but what happens on the stage and during that service time really should be pretty inspiring. And I hope you will plan to be there with us again. That is August 11th at 10 o'clock out at the River Bend. You'll see some banners and some posters around the church that'll help remind you of that. But please put it on your calendar and plan to be there. 
Got a pretty good joke for you following the 4th of July. I think you'll like this. One year, little Johnny's family was having the extended family 4th of July cookout at their home. One of the special treats that year was the lighting of the fireworks. Roman candles, bottle rockets, missile batteries, etc. They had bought all of this out of state because fireworks were illegal in their state, of course. Just before they were to arrive, a cousin calls saying their neighbor's plans had just fallen through and they wanted to know if they could bring them along to the picnic. They even had extra food to bring. Sure, the more the merrier. Upon arrival and meeting their cousin's neighbors, it is discovered that he is a police officer. The father turns as innocently as he can to little Johnny and whispers to him to grab the paper bag of fireworks sitting in the kitchen and hide them somewhere quickly. Johnny disappears and the father changes the topic to the food for the day. The family had brought some chicken to grill, so the father tells them that the gas grill is all set up to use out back. Just turn on the gas and push the ignition button with the lid still closed. They head out to the back as Johnny comes in through the front door. The father hurries to him and says, Whew, that was close. That man's a police officer and he almost saw the fireworks. Did you hide them really well? Oh yeah, nobody will ever think to look in the grill, little Johnny says. <laughs> you started laughing too early. That's what happened there. That, that was just good stuff all the way around. <clears throat> you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to open up to the Gospels, particularly to the Gospels of Luke and John. We're going to spend all of our time together this morning in just those two books, Luke and John. As you're turning, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're going to ask you to give us great insight today. As we're looking at what it means to truly love other people, we need you to show us, and you have. So would you open our eyes that we can simply see your example? And then would you open our minds so that we will choose to follow that example? Lord, this is basic teaching, but it's good. It's the type of teaching that we all need to be reminded of regularly. And I pray that we will. And I'm thankful that you keep it ever in front of us. Lord, help us learn how to love. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a fairly popular blogger these days that writes on a weekly basis different insights from her life. Her name is Karen Nemo. Karen invited 27 of her friends for a barbecue. They came over to her house and Karen wanted to do more than just feed them. She wanted to be fed by them as well. And what I mean by that, she had two questions that she wanted to ask. And ask she did. Now imagine that you were invited to this barbecue and She put both of these questions in front of you. Question number one, if you were designing your own perfect day, what would it look like? As people went around the circle that they were sitting in, she took notes and she wrote rapidly. Most of the people in that group of 27, her control group, started out by saying that they would want to sleep in. They would want to wake up without an alarm. They would want to control their day by not having any appointments on that perfect day. They didn't want anybody else to place any demands on them. And then they quickly shifted to food. They said that they would want to go to their favorite restaurant and order their favorite meals. She was somewhat surprised as she was writing all these notes down, the number of people that landed in that same place. A lot of the day was about food. 
As they were designing their perfect days, most of them said that they would want to do something outside. They would want to feel the sunshine on their skin. So they talked about going hiking and biking and walking, and some of them said they would want to go and run some different trails. A number of them said that they would want to go fishing, and a few said that they would want to go golfing because golf can run a perfect day. A few said that they would want to go on a picnic, and that was kind of interesting because they'd already talked about food. But they were designing their day so that they would be able to do the things that they really enjoyed, and they all said that they would want them to be low-stress activities. Then they talked about the people they'd want to be with, their friends, their family, the people that are special to them, the people that are close to them. A portion of that day would be set aside just to be with the folks that they love. Nothing surprising about that. A lot of their ideas were very casual. One lady in particular said, and I don't understand this for the life of me, she would like to set aside a block of time in her perfect day to just sit quietly with her husband. I, Tina might say something like that, and if that was the definition of her perfect day, it will never happen. Never, never happened. So she just wanted to sit in silence and enjoy the day, perfect days. So you might think to yourself, gosh, what would my perfect day look like? And if you were with Karen, she would want to know from you. And I would encourage you to sit down and talk to the people that are close to you about what your perfect day looks like. Not because you want to create it, but so that they can create it for you. That's a gift given from a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband and from children to their parents and parents to their children. It is a wonderful gift to say today, today I want it to be perfect just for you. This is what that would look like. I'm creating that for you. So Karen asked that question and she was intrigued by the answers. But then she followed it up with a second question. And this one knocked them off balance a little bit. You could imagine how this would look. She said, if you knew that you only had 24 hours to live, just one more day on this earth, then what would you want to do? They thought about that for a while, and Karen turned the page over so that she could write more notes. Interestingly enough, in her control group of 27 good friends sitting in her, at her house for this barbecue, they were able to answer fairly rapidly as well. This time, it only involved two elements. The first was food. They all talked about food. She was intrigued by that, and she said, so really, are you wanting this meal, this food that, that you're talking about? And instead of restaurants, by the way, they were talking about meals prepared at home, favorite meals, most of them involving bacon. She said, <clears throat> are you wanting this bacon-infested meal because of the fellowship that centers around eating, or is it solely because of the food? And without question, the people said it was solely about the food. Food is delicious. So maybe there is something to the idea of a last meal. These folks wanted bacon-infested meals because bacon is delicious. I, I agree. If you're leaving this earth, leave it with a belly full of bacon. Nothing better than that. Some salted cured pork. I like the whole idea of it. But then they talked about people. The rest of the day would be given to people. They would want to be surrounded by their loved ones. They would want their friends to stop by and visit. One person said, and this is highly intriguing to me, and it was a lady. She said she would like to attend four funerals on her last day of people that she loved. The reason for that were the warmth 
the hugs, the smiles, the memories, and the laughter that is often shared at a funeral. That's what she'd like to do. She would like to attend four funerals. That was really interesting to me. Other people would be on the phone. A few people said that they would gather folks together at their house, while others said that they would go to see people where they lived. One person said that they would want to spend the day at work. It's a unique answer. Probably had to be a preacher. That's the only thing I can imagine. One other individual said that they would jet off to a foreign country, but it wasn't simply about going to somewhere else. It was about experiencing something new. One person said, and this is quite telling, that they would want to spend the day with as many dogs as possible. With as many dogs as possible. Now, it's kind of an intriguing idea when you hear all of these different things that Karen was able to gather from all of her friends that were sitting with her. And what you realize is that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we ask questions like this, what's your perfect day look like? And a person begins to verbalize it, that's really coming from their heart. When we ask a question about the last 24 hours, if you knew you only had one day left to live, and they start to verbalize it, that is flowing out of their heart. You get a good glimpse into the heart of a person when you ask a question like that. So as I was reading Karen's blog, I was thinking through both of those questions, of course, and thinking about 27 people gathered around the fire pit in my backyard and some of the answers that they would give, and I asked what it would be like if Jesus was with us. Didn't have enough time to go through his perfect day, though I had some high points already written out and and had already started thinking about that as I was reading through her blog and, and thinking through the answers that other people had given. What I really let my mind come to rest on is, what would Jesus have done if he knew that he only had 24 hours left to live? Well, we need to do nothing more than open our Bibles to the Gospels to find that answer. We know exactly what Jesus would have done. And the things that he chose to do with that last day came from his heart, flowed right out of that central part of who he was, and his choices landed on other people in the form of love. Jesus chose love. There was nothing selfish about what he did with that last day. It was all about love. And what he did and how he did it is incredibly inspiring. I want to show it to you. So if you're open to the Gospel of Luke, let's turn to the 22nd chapter together. Luke chapter 22 puts some kind of a marker in this chapter so that you'll be able to turn back to it. We're going to bounce around a little bit in here. Starting in verse 7, listen to what we read. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. This is Thursday. Jesus will die on Friday. This is the last day that he will live as a man. And he says, I want to share a meal with you guys. 
That's a spiritual meal. There is no question about it. But he looks at the 12 men that he has invested the last three years of his life with, and he says, this is our day. This is our day. He doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't go to the synagogue. He doesn't go to a public place where they might be celebrating the Passover. He says, let's do this, just us. Just us. He chooses to have a meal with those that he cares about. You see how his answer would closely mirror what Karen Nemo found out? And I want to show you something highly intriguing about that meal. We know that he is choosing to share it with the disciples, but let's take a look at who is there. This is John chapter 13, so keep your finger in Luke 22, but turn with me to John chapter 13. We're going to read just the first two verses. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now here's what I want you to pay close attention to. All 12 of the disciples were there. All 12 of the disciples were there. Judas was there. Jesus had his choice to make. These are my last 24 hours here, and I want to share a meal with those that are closest to me, and I want Judas to be there. Just let that sink in. This meal could have happened after Judas had left. Because Jesus was both man and God, he could have prompted Judas to be gone. He could have said, I am so upset with you that I don't even want to look at you. He didn't do that. Judas was invited to the meal. That is highly intriguing to me, and it answers questions for people that kick around ideas like this. Well, I can't go to church. Not the way I've lived. I've done too many bad things to be welcomed in a church. I've sinned too much for God to want me to be there. My choices would keep me out of church. There's no way that I could go there and feel good about it. Or you've heard people say, if I were to walk into the church, lightning will strike it. How many of you have heard a statement like that? The earth will open up and swallow the church if I were to go there. Well, you know what? That's not true. And let me tell you that that passage right there in John chapter 13 proves it. No lightning struck the house where they were sharing this meal. The earth didn't open up and swallow everybody that was there because Judas was present. The devil had already entered him. So folks, at any point where you find yourself thinking, I don't belong or God can't love me, or Jesus doesn't want me. You turn to John chapter 13, and you let the truth of Scripture remind you that there is a place for you around his table. Jesus shared a meal with the disciples. Then he did something else that is highly intriguing in and of itself. He gave a gift to those 12, and in the process, he gave one to us. It was a gift to remember him by. Let's go back to Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table. Now, what the Bible means when it says, and when the hour came, it means that it was time. The fellowship of the Passover was over now. It was time to put things into motion. When the hour came, it was time for everything to start unfolding. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
And he took a cup, and he gave thanks, and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now follow what's happening. Jesus just gave them communion. He just instituted the Lord's Supper. And he did that with the twelve, including Judas, who was there. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Can you imagine the confusion of that moment? This is the first time they had taken the Lord's Supper. This is the first time anybody had taken the Lord's Supper. And Jesus is passing this bread around and he's passing this juice around or this wine around with a very simple explanation that would have confused the greatest of theologians. What in the world does that mean? 24 hours later, it would make perfect sense. But right here in this moment, it would be really confusing. And they were confused by it. You want to know why I believe that? Because Jesus would quickly talk about the one who would betray him, and that's what they talked about. They started to question, who is that? What's that about? Who's the one that's going to betray him? Which one of us has sold him out? That's where their conversation went. Rather than saying, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood poured out for you, they took the easy road and said, well, who's it going to be? Now, that causes me to ask this question, and I've asked it a number of times in my life. How much did things change from the first time they took the Lord's Supper to the second time they took the Lord's Supper? Because the disciples were going to move from this realm of confusion to complete understanding between the first and the second time. Or at least they are going to progress from complete confusion to a new understanding from the first time to the second time. I did a little bit of math sitting at my desk this past week. Simple little math. I became a Christian. I was baptized in August of 1978. I was 10 years old. I am 50 years old today. So 40 years have passed. Now, in simple math, I have determined that I have taken the Lord's Supper at least once every Sunday since. Truth of the matter is, and I can move out of the simple math really easily, I take communion at least twice a week, oftentimes three times a week, and there are a number of weeks that it is more than that. So I have no idea how many times I have actually taken the Lord's Supper. If you throw in other opportunities to take communion, special worship services that I have been a part of in four decades, I could never come up with the number. So I just whittled it back down to once a week for 40 years. That means that I have taken communion 2,080 times in my life. And here's what I can tell you. My understanding of the Lord's Supper grows deeper every time. Every time. The last time I took communion was a week ago today. I understood more when I took communion last week than I did the week before. And I know that in a few moments when we take the Lord's Supper again uh, together, 
I'm going to understand it at a deeper level than I did last week. Now, I'm not talking about great revelations. I'm talking about a compounding interest type of thing. I've just understood a little bit more. I've experienced it a little bit deeper. I understand it a little bit better. The apostles probably experienced that exact same thing every time they took the Lord's Supper. From the first time where it was highly confusing to the last time possibly before they knew they were going to see the Lord, it was very hopeful. And a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's the depth of the gift that God gave us through communion. It is something that continues to grow deeper and deeper and deeper within us. If we will open our hearts to what it really means, we'll be inspired by it every time. So not only did Jesus share this spiritual meal, the Passover, with those that he was closest to, not only did he give them and us the gift of communion, but he also did something else that is really, really intriguing. Knowing that he only had 24 hours left to live, he settled a dispute. He settled a dispute, almost like he was wanting to make sure that everyone would be at peace. Let's go back to the Gospel of John together again. Or actually, back to Luke, sorry, 22. Luke 22, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus takes a worldly idea and turns it upside down in the presence of the disciples so that he can settle this base dispute, who's the greatest among us? And it is a dispute that probably existed long before the disciples ever started talking about it and certainly exists 2,000 years later. Who's the greatest? Who's the best? Who's the strongest? Who's the most beautiful? On and on and on and on it goes. All you have to do is open People Magazine and Time Magazine and you'll see that this dispute continues on. The world continues to wrestle with it. So Jesus says, let's change the logic that the world says determines that answer and let's look at it in a totally different way. It's the least among you, those that serve those that have their sights set on the needs of other people instead of just on themselves, those are the greatest in my kingdom. Figure this out. And look at how he illustrates it. Let's go back to John now. John chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, 
The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on the outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now let's go back to verse 17 real quick. Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you are a note taker in your Bible, why don't you highlight or underline the word blessed or blessed? Make it stand out. In the margin of your Bible, then write this word, happy. This summer in our Be Fed Sunday School series, we've been looking at the Beatitudes. Each one of them starts with that word blessed. When we started the study out, we said that the closest translation that we have in the English language for the meaning of that word blessed, and it sounds very biblical, blessed, in the English language, that is happy. So listen to this again. Happy are you if you know them. So Jesus is saying, happy will you be, happy are you, if you figure out the principles that I am teaching right now. Learn how to wash other people's feet. Learn how to put other people ahead of yourself. Learn how to, this is the simplest way to say it, love. Learn how to love, and you will be happy. That was the message of Jesus' 33 years on this earth. The three years of his public ministry were driven by that very idea. Learn how to love. When he was questioned by the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, about the greatest of the commandments, Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments that Jesus would call out were to love. Love God first and then love others. And everything else hinges on those things, he said. Everything else falls into place when we figure that out. And here's what it looks like when we do. He'll truly be happy. You will truly be happy when you learn how to love. Now, not only was Jesus teaching that in the last 24 hours that he was alive as a man, he was actually finishing what he had started. In his three years of public ministry, Jesus demonstrated this idea over and over and over again. Love the Lord your God and love other people. Make sure that they are more important in your eyes than you are. You put your focus on them. It is simply a matter of Jesus saying, now let me show you one more time. And if you don't believe me, let me take you back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're still in the Gospel of John. Go to chapter 4 with me. And once you do that, turn to Luke chapter 4. 
Sorry, 66 books. We're only in two of them, and I get confused where I'm at. Luke chapter 4. This is right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He has gone to the city of Capernaum, which will become his adult home. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, I like this, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? You ever think of a demon going, Ha! (laughs) Anyway, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. This may very well have been the first time that Jesus had gone to Capernaum. Certainly as an adult, maybe he had traveled there with his mother. There's strong speculation that he had. But now he's back in Capernaum and people are are a little bit confused. But follow what's happening. He goes to the synagogue. Nothing confusing about that. And he starts to teach. That would have had him a little off balance. He's not a rabbi. He's a carpenter. But he has such authority and understanding in the word that they have no choice but to pay attention to him. Then this demon speaks. Ha! Ha! And Jesus rebukes him, which you can appreciate. Cast the demon out of the man. Whole, whole big thing that happens. Whole big drama that happens. But now people are paying attention. They are paying attention. And one person in particular is watching. This is verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, this is a little biblical test, so stay with me, and if you know the answer, go ahead and speak it. Who is Simon? That is Peter. But when he is called Simon in this case, he is not yet Peter. He is not yet a disciple. Peter, Simon Peter, is from the city of Capernaum. That's where his business was located, probably grew up there. So he fished out on the Sea of Galilee. He may have come into contact with Jesus a time or two before this, but now he's in the synagogue with him on the Sabbath, listening to Jesus speak, and he sees what's happening, and he says as soon as it's over, hey, Jesus, would you like to come to my house for a meal? Jesus responds and says yes. Now, culture and tradition tells us that that is a very normal practice during those days. People would invite new folks over to their house. There would always be a big celebration on the Sabbath. So Peter says, or Simon says, would you like to come to my house for a meal? But he has an ulterior motive. His mother-in-law is sick. Simon just saw what Jesus is capable of, and his mother-in-law has been sick for a long time. Jesus knew that Simon had an ulterior motive. He knew that it wasn't just about the meal. He knew that there was something else at play, but pay attention to what Jesus did. He went. He didn't ask any questions. He just went. And then when they showed him Simon's mother-in-law, which, by the way, the Bible never tells us her name. Not one time. This account shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. And in each one of those cases, she is referred to as Simon's mother-in-law or the, wife of, or the, the mother of Simon's wife. 
never tells us her name, nor does the Bible ever tell us Simon's wife's name. But Jesus responded to her need. And this is where this is so interesting. Did he respond to her need because she was sick, or did he respond to Simon's heart? By all appearances, it looks like he responded to Simon's heart. There were a lot of people that were sick that were never healed by Jesus. This lady would have never come in contact with Jesus had it not been for Simon. So Simon says, come to my house, and Jesus responded. And here's what he taught us in the process of that. He taught us the difference between accessibility and availability in the realm of love. He taught us the difference between accessibility and availability. Accessibility is the type of mindset that knows somebody has a need, but then responds with words like this. Hey, give me a call if you need help. Or let us know if we can do anything for you. That's accessibility. You just call and we'll be there. You have probably, like me, said those words a number of times. That's accessibility. What we do is hear a need from another person. We know that we should respond to it, but we put the burden back on that person before we willingly choose to get involved and help. Jesus did not do that. Jesus chose a path of availability. Availability says, I'm on my way. I know there's a need. I'm on my way. I'm coming right now. And that's what that story teaches us. Jesus knew that Simon had an ulterior motive. He had a need because he knew the heart of the man. And he said, all right, let's go. We'll go take care of it. I'm with you. Let's do whatever we need to do. My friends, that is love. That is love. Living with people happens in the realm of accessibility. Love relationships happen in the realm of availability. Whatever your need is, I'll be there. I'm on my way. I'm coming. There are a lot of people in this church that are masters of availability. They know exactly what it looks like. For 15 years, I have watched people respond exactly like that. I'm on my way. You have a need. I'm on my way. I can help. I'll be right there. It is inspiring when you see that. It is the heart of Jesus being modeled by other people. If we want to live generously through love, which is the title of this message, it requires an available mindset. Not just an accessible mindset, but an available mindset. I'll be right there. Take care of whatever you need. I'm in. I'll help you. Don't have to ask me again. Please don't. It'd almost be insulting if you did. I'm coming. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between call me if you need anything and I'll be right there? That's where we begin to generously pour out love on other people when we embrace that idea. We could have easily today titled this message, Living Availably. Now I chose living generously through love because we're in the midst of a sermon series, but we could have tied this idea of availability to it very easily. And it's one of those things that our culture and our society struggles with in the biggest of ways. We want to be available, but we choose accessible because we don't have a burden attached to us in those moments. Accept the burden of available and live that way. Respond to the needs that people put in front of you with a simple, I'm on my way, and see what happens. 
Interestingly enough, when we do, we will start to understand a form of love that Jesus taught over and over and over again. Now, when we use the word love in our culture and our society, we tend to reserve it for the romantic or at the very least for our families. We choose to not use the word love real openly and real flagrantly. The Greek people choose a different path. In fact, they have seven different words for love. Seven different Greek words for love. I was going to take you through all of them this morning, but we do not have enough time, so let me just give you one of them. It is the word agape. Agape simply means, in the Greek language, a caring or godly concern for other people. Listen to this, even if you do not know them, or it gets a little deeper here, or even like them. That's what agape love is. Agape love is a caring or godly concern for other people, even if you do not know them or like them. An agape love is the type of love that originates in your heart, but it requires your head to act upon it. An agape love is not a feeling that elicits an action. It is an action that brings about a feeling. It is a completely different type of love. We want to believe that love is always a feeling, and that that feeling will then inspire us to do something. Well, agape love is completely different than that. It originates in your heart, but it requires your head to bring about an action. It is a decision. It is a choice. But once you choose that type of love, then there is an emotion that follows it. Now, this is where this is really interesting. Psychology, modern psychology, has been tracing this. They have been tracking it, and they have determined that there is actually a chemical reaction within us that comes as a result of pouring out agape love. If you were to go into their studies, and I did this past week, several of them, here's what you would find. They started their studies in the realm of the Bible looking at the Greek word agape, and then they moved into the New Testament word charity, and they saw that the two are very closely connected. But then they placed after that the new modern word altruism. Altruism is a simple word that sounds a lot more complicated than it is. It means a general well-being or a concerning well-being for other people. That's what altruism is. You hear the word thrown around all the time. They have an altruistic mind. Or this was a study in altruism. You hear that all the time. It simply means that a person has a genuine concern for the well-being of another person. That's what altruism is. Well, psychologists have determined that if a person gets involved in that type of concern for another individual, even if they do not know them or do not like them, then there is a euphoric state that follows helping those people. They call it the helper's high. Have you ever heard of it? It's the helper's high. It releases a chemical within your brain and within your body that can sustain you for long periods of time. In their ongoing study of altruism, which ties itself back to the Bible, modern psychologists have said that it causes an increase in mental health, it causes an increase in physical health, and it can even increase longevity. The helper's high, the chemical reaction that comes as a result of loving people through an agape love has great benefits in your life. Jesus would say, blessed are you if you figure this out. Happy are you if you do this. Do you see why? 
And now, all of a sudden, modern sciences are saying, Jesus was right. Jesus was right. Folks, don't ever make the mistake of believing that science proves the Bible. The Bible proves science. So you go back to the Bible and you see that Jesus said 2,000 years ago that there's a chemical reaction that will be released within you and it will create a euphoric state if you will agape love other people and get invested in their life. Live it generously and you benefit as much as the people that you pour it out upon. Isn't that an interesting way of looking at it? I want to show you an illustration of this. The worship team's going to come as as I share this with you. It's a story that I read from a trekker that has made his way all around the world. I was reading some things out of his journal and was really inspired by this story. He was on the island of Crete and wrote this so that he wouldn't forget it. This is what he says. I knew that no matter what door you knock on in a Cretan village, it will be opened for you. A meal will be served in your honor and you will sleep between the best sheets in the house. In Crete, the stranger is still the unknown God. Before him, all doors and all hearts are open. Night had already begun to descend as I entered the village. The doors were all shut. In the courtyard, the dogs caught the intruder's scent and began to bark. Where should I go? At which door should I knock? At the priest's home, where all strangers find refuge. The priest in this village are uncultivated. Their education is meager. They are incapable of any theoretical discussion of Christian doctrine, but Christ lives in their hearts, and sometimes they see him with their eyes, if not by the pillow of a wartime casualty then sitting beneath a flowering almond tree in springtime. A door opened. A little old woman came out with a lamp in her hand to see who the stranger was who had entered the village at such an hour. I stopped. Long may you live, madam, I said, sweetening my voice so that she would not be frightened. I am a stranger and have nowhere to sleep. Would you be so kind as to direct me to the priest's house? Gladly. I'll hold the lamp so you won't stumble. God, his holy name be blessed, gave soil to some, stones to others. Our lot was the stones. Watch your step and follow me. She led the way with the lamp. We turned a corner and arrived at a vaulted doorway. A lantern was hanging outside. This is the priest's house, said the old woman. Lifting the lamp, she threw the light on my face and sighed. She was going to say something, but changed her mind. Thank you, my fine woman, I said. Sorry to bother you. Good night. She kept looking at me, not going away. If you wouldn't mind a poor house, you could come and lodge with me. But I had already knocked on the priest's door. I heard heavy steps in the yard. The door opened. Standing in front of me was an old man with a snow-white beard and long hair flowing down over his shoulders. Without asking me who I was or what I wanted, he extended his hand. Welcome. Are you a stranger? Come in. I heard voices as I entered. Doors opened and closed, and several women slipped down hastily into the adjoining room and vanished. The priest had me sit down on the couch. My wife is a little disposed. You'll have to excuse her. But I myself will cook for you, lay the table for your supper, and prepare a bed so that you can sleep. His voice was heavy and afflicted. I looked at him. He was extremely pale, and his eyes were swollen and inflamed, as though from weeping. But no thought of a misfortune occurred to me. I ate, slept, and in the morning the priest came and brought me a tray of bread, cheese, and milk. I held out my hand, thanked him, and said goodbye. God bless you, my son, he said. Christ be with you. I left. At the edge of the village, an old man appeared. Placing his hand over his breast, he greeted me. Where did you spend the night, son, he asked. At the priest's house. 
The old man sighed. Ah, the poor fellow. And you didn't catch wind of anything? What was there to catch wind of? His son died yesterday morning, his only son. Didn't you hear the women lamenting? I heard nothing, nothing. They had him in the inner room. They must have muffled their laments to keep you from hearing and being disturbed. Pleasant journey. My eyes filled with tears. What are you crying for? exclaimed the old man in astonishment. Oh, I see. You're young. You haven't got used to death yet. Pleasant journey. 